Let me tell you what my deep research and basically vision is. I hope there's Bigfoot. I don't think there is. I'm not telling you nothing. <laughs> the aliens won't let it happen. <laughs> Happening now, breaking. Bernie Sanders is a Bears beats Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> what are the tips? Give me some tips on how to work with Wes Anderson. Um, be ready to speak very fast and very <laughs> clearly because that's definitely one key thing. Until you and six kids you barely know in wet bathing suits have surrounded nine chimpanzees outside of a Wendy's, you probably really don't know yourself, okay? Yep. And we back. Hello and welcome. You're listening to your new favorite podcast and the best in political sports and paranormal news coverage. I'm your host, Wes Anderson, and this is In the Shed. This is episode 15, so whether you're back for more or finding us for the first time this week, hey, thanks for tuning in. It's early Saturday, June 5th, and I'm in the shed in the backyard of my home in Alabama, all so I can hang out with you tools and talk about the latest headlines, stories, and rumors in the world of politics, sports, and the paranormal. I'm back my tools, back from illness, back from vacation, back in the shed again. I took my family on a much needed vacation. It was great. We had a blast. We went to a wedding in Tennessee. Congratulations to cousin John and new wife Masha. May you be eternally blessed. Uh, We caught up with family that we haven't seen in a while at the wedding, which was good. Um, Man, you should have seen little man cutting a rug on the dance floor. One year old, and that boy has rhythm. He was up four and a half hours past his bedtime, and he was out on the dance floor just getting it. I mean, straight getting it. Dude learned to walk two weeks ago, and my boy out here doing the Cupid shuffle. That man heard the cha-cha slide come on, was clapping his hands right on time, like, oh, you gonna tell me what to do? Oh, okay, well, I got this then. We stayed at a horse farm outside of Nashville, so that was pretty cool. Uh, After that, we went and stayed with my brother-in-law and his wife. Got to hang out with my brand new baby nephew, Owen, who is undoubtedly uh, the coolest baby on the planet at this present time. Uh, After that, we went to Tupelo, Mississippi, birthplace of Elvis Presley. Fun fact. And, more importantly, home of my Meemaw. Yeah, man, we went to see Meemaw. Y'all know Meemaw, she's our biggest fan, listens to every episode of the show. I hadn't made it out to see her in a minute, so we got to spend some time with my Meemaw and my Papa, with my aunt and uncle and my cousins, and uh, also their neighbors, who I've known for 8 to 10 years and are basically part of the family too. Shout out Mike and Maureen. We even went to this place called the Tupelo Buffalo Park. And while we were there, uh, we got to see all kinds of animals, took the little ones, it was cool. And we also got to do something called a drive-through safari, which basically means that you get to drive your car, actually I drove my wife's car, through a field full of wild animals that do not belong near your car. And you get to take the opportunity and the chance to navigate through some buffaloes and some kangaroos and ostriches and emus and camels and zebras and hope 
and pray that your car don't get dented, that your rearview mirror don't get knocked off, and that no damage is done whatsoever. So we pull into this drive through safari. We're like three seconds in. And uh, Meemaw's riding shotgun. She's got this uh, food bucket because we decided it would be fun to feed the wild animals. And I see this large emu making his way over to Meemaw's window rather quickly. So I'm like, hey, Meemaw, you want to feed the emu? And Meemaw is game because Meemaw is a baller. So I roll down Meemaw's window, and before she can even wrap her hands around the handles of this feed bucket, this emu is two-thirds of the way into the car. His head is in Meemaw's lap, and he's just pecking like nobody's business. He's being overly aggressive. He's bobbing his head up and down, throwing feed all over the floor, all over the seat. Meemaw is freaked out. My five-year-old is in the back seat, terrified, screaming. I'm trying to rescue Meemaw from this overly aggressive emu. And unbeknownst to me, a large camel has come up behind me. And now his head is in my window. He's trying to get over to the feed bucket. I'm trying to throw some bows to get this camel out of my car, out of my wife's Toyota Venza. And then Meemaw's over here dealing with this emu trying to fight him off. So it was wild. It was wild, man. <laughs> we had fun, though. It was a good time. We rolled the window up and uh, Meemaw did not have interest in feeding any other animals after that. And because it was such a good trip, this might be our biggest show yet. Because if you've listened to our show before, then you are well aware that we are in a very public feud with another podcast, 8 Bits and Bobbles. 8 Bits and Bobbles is my cousin's podcast, he and his two friends, uh, and they talk about all the things that they nerd out about. And on their last show, they had the audacity, the unmitigated gall, to do this. My name is Mima, and I'm here to welcome you to 8 Bits and Bubbles. If you are listening to the podcast, you're probably a little confused. Uh, Leighton, Chris, and I do not sound like a 70-year-old woman. Um, Leighton does sometimes when he talks about film and just gets really excited. But <laughs> for the most part, he, he has his normal voice. Um, but the reason that we have that on, for, for those of you who may not know, I, I have a cousin who has a podcast as well. Uh, his podcast, you should give it a listen. Uh, it's called In the Shed with Wes Anderson. It's a news variety podcast. He talks about a lot of interesting things. Uh, things that noteworthy that happen in the world and in uh, the USA. But on their last podcast, on one of their latest episodes, they decided that they would start a podcast war with us. Big mistake. And mm. Wes Anderson's biggest fan, the one that has his heart the most, is his Meemaw. And so just a little plot twist for you. Uh, the woman doing the intro for us tonight is Wes Anderson's biggest fan, the one who holds his heart the closest. The one who he waits for her text message every week after he releases a podcast. It was Meemaw. And in this one fell swoop, we have ended this podcast war that he started. It's done. It's, it's done. It's Real over. Quick. Real quick. You, you can never recover. No matter how many text messages that Meemaw sends you. 
No matter how many times she says that she has been excited for your podcast. No matter how many times she tells you she loves you. She's also my meemaw now. <laughs> She's become 8-Bits and Bobble's meemaw. Yep. And she has done the intro for our show. So make of that what you will. But for those of you who are interested, it is seriously a very good podcast. Uh, he talks about a lot of interesting things. He talks about everything from uh, Chinese game shows to uh, political things that are happening in the country right now to even Bigfoot festivals that he will never be invited to. That's <laughs> uh, so sad. <laughs> so sad. Yeah, that's right. Eight Bits and Bobbles had Meemaw do the intro to their show. First of all, I'm pretty certain that she said eight bits and bubbles. So I'm not too offended that you had her on your show. But not only did they have Meemaw do their intro, they said I would never get invited to a Bigfoot festival. And they said that the podcast war is over. Done. Finito. It's over. They won. Now, one of the cousins I visited in Mississippi is my cousin Brenton from 8 Bits and Bobbles. And I got news for you, cuzzo. After all, this is a news show. This war ain't over till Big Cousin says it's over. It's not over till the fat lady sings and this ain't no musical. You didn't end the feud, big homie. You just sparked it up. And hey, if you want to get froggy, we can leap. You got me pretty good. I'll be the first to admit it. But listen, I got something for you. You think you can just have Meemaw do your intro and get away with it? Eight bits and bobbles, I'm about to eight mile, you boys, and I'm no Cheddar Bob. Oh, Meemaw did your intro. That's cute. That's cute. Get a load of this. Hello, tools. It's me, Meemaw. Eight Bits and Bobbles is a good show, but you're listening to my favorite news podcast, In the Shed with Wes Anderson. Follow the show on Twitter at In the Shed 4. Grandson, we made it. Yeah. Y'all had me Ma do an intro to your show. Well, so did we. And on In the Shed with Wes, guess what? Meemaw actually pronounced the name of our show correctly. What does that tell you? Not only that, but Meemaw said 8 Bits and Bobbles is a good show. What did she say about In the Shed with Wes? She used the word, uh, favorite. Oh boy, favorite. Good, favorite. Good, favorite. So at this point, you're probably hearing that and thinking, okay, big deal. We had Meemaw do an intro, you had Meemaw do an intro. I guess we're even. Nah, fam. Nah. It don't stop there. That's just the beginning. Listen. You're listening to the best new show in the land. That's your baby sister. On In the Shed with Wes. Calling us... The best new show in the land. Good. Favorite. Good. Best. So we got Meemaw on the show. We got your baby sister on the show. But wait, there's more. I'm listening to In the Shed with Wes Anderson. Wait a second. Wait a second. Was was that? Was that? 
Brenton, that was your father. Yeah. Yeah, little cousin. You had Meemaw do the intro to your show. Well, we had Meemaw too. She pronounced our show best. She called your show good. She used the word favorite to describe our show. I had your baby sister on the show. I had your pops on the show. But wait, there's more. Because in the Shadow West, like a blind kid at recess, we don't play those games. We going for the knockout. We going for the knockout. We pulled something off that no other podcast in all of human history has done. Not only did I have your baby sister on the show. Not only did I have your pops on the show. Not only did I have Meemaw do our intro and actually pronounce the name of our show correctly. But we had Meemaw in the shed with us. That's right. We had Meemaw hang around and actually do a segment of our show with us. Word? Yeah. Word. And when we have a guest on in the shed with Wes, there's a game that we like to play with them, a game that we have come up with ourselves called Cap or Dap. It's a game where we run through 10 questions and our guest either agrees with the statement of the question by saying Dap or they disagree by saying Cap. And we had Meemaw in the shed playing Cap or Dap with us. And this is how it went. All right, Meemaw, cap or dap? Question one, intelligent life exists outside of Earth. Cap. Why is that? We don't have intelligent, a lot of intelligent life on Earth. (laughs) I'd hate to think that there's more out there. Uh, Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I'm going to say dap. I think that as big as the universe is somewhere, there's some type of life out there. I think evidence is starting to stack up in that category. Um, So I hear you, but I'm going to go dap on that one. Well, we'll see. Someday. Someday. Number two, the Brooklyn Nets will win the NBA championship, cap or dap? Um, Cap. Mainly because I don't watch a lot of NBA basketball. Right. Now, if they have a lot of Kentucky players on their team, maybe they could handle that. For sure. That would help. That would yes. help. A lot of good Kentucky yeah. players in the NBA. That's right. Um, I, I'm i going to go cap also. Uh, I don't know. At first, I thought the Lakers would win, but with Anthony Davis hurt, uh, that doesn't look likely. Um, the Nets have a lot of talent, a lot of scoring. They don't play any defense. It'll be interesting to see what happens if they can just outscore every team every night. Um, but I'm for now. I'm going to stick with Cap on that one. Do they have any Kentucky players? Um, not that I can think of. Well, none in the starting lineup. So there's it's, that. It's going to be a Cap. Then. It's going to be a Cap. Uh, number three, The Lion King is the best movie of all time. Cap. Cap. Yeah. I know you like The Lion King. Yeah. Well, what, what's well, better? What, oh, what's one movie that's better than The Lion King? There's so many. I also like Steel Magnolias. That's a good one. While You Were Sleeping. I've seen that one. Um, Don't think it's better than Lion King, but okay. Well, but it, it, it is so uplifting. Yeah, that's and true. I like happy, uplifting movies. I think I'll disagree with you. I'll say, Dap, uh, I recently made a list of my favorite five movies that I eventually will share on the podcast. Um, and I think The Lion King is number one for me. It's just, it's a movie I never get tired of watching. I've shown it to my children. Uh, you took me to see it in theaters. 
I did? Yeah, you did. Oh. You did. I remember seeing it. I didn't remember who was with me. So that's a, a, a dap for me and a cap for you. Mm. Number four, Skyline Chili is good. Um, I'd have to say cap because I've never had it. You've never had Skyline I've Chili? I've never had Skyline You're Chili. You're from Ohio. Uh, and you've never had Skyline I Chili? I was from uh, Central Ohio. Central. Is that like a northern Ohio thing? No, it was more of a southern. Okay. okay. I think. It was always Cincinnati Skyline, I think. So yeah, Cincinnati. That's right. That's, yeah. And the Skyline is like the chili that they put all the different stuff in yeah. it. It's not just regular chili. But, I guess. But yeah. I like my chili just like I grew up eating it with, I don't want all this extra stuff in right. it. I just want chili. I want yep. chili. Yep, and I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with you. I'm gonna say cap. I've had it one time. I was not overly impressed. It's kind of one of those things that you either love or you hate. Most people I've talked to that have had it, they either loved it or they hated it. Mm. Um, number five, cap or dap? New Orleans is the coolest city you've ever visited. <sighs> Definitely cap. What's the coolest? San Diego. San Diego. San Diego. You like San Diego? So far, yes, I did. Cool. I loved it. I, I think to go back. I like New Orleans. It's a cool city, but I think my favorite city I've ever visited, uh, I would have to, this is going to be a weird one, but I would have to go with Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, I just, it, I don't know. It's very different than anywhere I've ever been. I've spent a lot of time in the South. I've traveled uh, the East Coast, but out there in the desert, it was just entirely different. Um, so I yep. really liked, also liked Denver, Colorado. That was another cool Never place been. I've been. Well, we were in Denver. We drove through it. Yeah, yeah. So we both agree there. That's a cap. New Orleans is cool, but not our favorite. Yeah. Number six, Kentucky football finishes second in the SEC East this season. Cap. And it really doesn't matter where they finish because the important one is where Ohio State's going to finish. Yeah, Ohio State is your favorite for sure. And, of course, I asked this question because uh, I did my SEC East preview on last episode, and I had Kentucky finishing second, which is a surprise. Most people would have them finishing behind at least Georgia and Florida, maybe even behind Missouri as well. Uh, but I, I decided that they're going to have a great year this year and win eight games, so we'll see how that, that shakes out. That would be nice. It would be. It'd be, yeah. it'd be fun. Uh, number seven, emus are the most terrifying bird, cap or dap? Dap. I probably wouldn't have said that had it not been for yesterday. They can be a little frightening. Yeah, they're aggressive, aggressive very, very, birds, very. and they're large, right. they're pretty and large, they, and they're hungry. Hungry, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Number eight, cap or dap? Do you know who Joe Exotic is? Uh, um, cap, because I no, I don't know who he is. <laughs> <laughs> However, uh, now I did. Did ask who he was after you showed me this question. Yeah. And I'm one of the probably few people in this world yeah. who have not watched Tiger King. I started to say Lion King, yeah. Tiger King. We talked about both lions yes. and tigers and bears. Yes. Oh my. But I, I, I think may get around to doing that. Just You're going to have to. There's five people left in the world that haven't seen it. So. On the one hand, it's kind of cool that you can say you've never seen it. You know, I've never seen Star Wars, and the only reason I won't watch it is Me because I, I can say I've never seen it. We have that in common, too. Not one. But, not yeah, one. you'll have to watch it. It's, it's, it's insane. It's one of the craziest things you'll ever see, uh-huh. and it's wildly entertaining. Uh, Grandpa would probably like it, too. He would find it interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Number nine, In the Shed with Wes is your favorite podcast. It is my favorite podcast in Alabama. <laughs> favorite in Alabama. I'll take it. I'll take it. Okay. And, of course, you're saying that because 
uh, your other grandson that has, has a podcast. A favorite one in Mississippi. That one's in recorded in Mississippi. Yes. So in the shed with Wes is your favorite podcast yes. in Alabama. Now, if you two want to keep this up, that's fine. I can be bought. There you go. I will bribe you. I'm not above that at all. I have no problem with bribery. <laughs> all right. And last one, cap or dap with Meemaw, Sasquatch is real. Cap. Cap. Yeah. Why do you think Cap? He's been around too long. He's got to be dead by now. Not a believer. Not really. I mean, it could be like a very rare undiscovered ape that's this natural to uh, North they America. If they hadn't him too long, they would have found him by now. Yeah, I think that show, uh, Finding Bigfoot's on like season 10 or something like that. Uh, they hadn't found him yet. They yeah. hadn't found him. And they've been looking a lot longer than that. Yeah, that's true. So yeah. you say Cap. I, I say Dap, but I say Dap in a hopeful way. I don't really know. I think it'd be cool if there was some undiscovered ape-like creature. That'd be neat. And he's liable to be as mean as an emu, so... Well, hey, then we're in some trouble because they say he's, you know, a pretty big guy. That's but right. You're going to say Cap on that one. I'm going to say Dap. This has been Cap or Dap with Meemaw. Meemaw, thanks for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. So there you have it. In the shed with Wes, doing it big. We had your baby sister on. We had your pops on. And Meemaw hung around and did a segment of the show with us. I guess it's your move, 8 Bits and Bobbles. Ball is in your court. But I don't see how you can top that. Seriously, though, 8 Bits and Bobbles is a very entertaining show, much more professional than us Um, On our show, if it's raining, you can hear it. If there's a dog barking, you can hear it. If a police siren goes by, you can hear it. Um, Those guys, uh, they do a great job. They are hilarious. Um, One of the latest episodes I listened to was about bourbon and was very interesting. Uh, I also listened to an episode about musicals, and I do not like musicals. However, uh, listening to them talk about it was very entertaining. Um, So if you are so inclined, you should check out the show 8 Bits and Bobbles and leave it a good review on Apple Podcasts. But as far as our podcast feud goes, I'm sorry I had to do you like that, 8 Bits and Bobbles. You thought the podcast war was over, but in the shed with Wes done took you out. Mama said knock you out, and Meemaw helped. Alright, enough of that. No time for comments or corrections or listener email. Although if you would like to email the show, you can reach us at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Again, that's intheshedwithwes at gmail.com, and we might even read it on air. Let's switch to the world of politics, and let's hit the headlines. Bill Gates and Warren Buffett team up to build an advanced nuclear plant in Wyoming, according to InfoWars. From the dispatch, Senate Republicans ready to block Cooper as environment chief. The U.S. is sending at least 80 million surplus COVID-19 vaccines abroad, says NPR. DOJ probing Postmaster General DeJoy over former firm's political donations, writes ABC News. And finally, Biden is planning to make big changes to how U.S. handles asylum seekers at the border, and that is according to BuzzFeed News. Our first story in the world of politics, McConnell says focus is on stopping Biden agenda as Trump continues to push election lies. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said Wednesday that his focus was on stopping President Biden's administration, citing the unity in his caucus. 
100% of my focus is on stopping this new administration, McConnell said during a press conference in Kentucky when asked if he was concerned that Republicans who acknowledge Biden as the rightful winner of the 2020 election could face political liabilities. 100% of my focus is on standing up to this administration, McConnell continued. What we have in the United States Senate is total unity from moderate Maine Senator Susan Collins to conservative Texas Senator Ted Cruz in opposition to what the new Biden administration is trying to do to this country. McConnell's comments come as his party continues to reckon with the legacy of former President Donald Trump, who handily lost the November election to Biden, but has continued to baselessly insist that he won. Trump remains wildly popular with Republican voters and is considered a leading candidate for the GOP presidential nomination in 2024. At the same time, Trump is a divisive figure who continues to alienate broad swaths of the electorate, including many traditionally right-leaning voters. The question of how to handle Trump looms over GOP leaders like McConnell, who are struggling to find a way to keep the voters Trump attracted to the party while winning back those that he drove away. In the meantime, House and Senate Republicans have stayed largely united in opposing Biden's agenda despite their internal disagreements over Trump. The comments from McConnell echo a statement he made to the National Journal in 2010 when he said the single most important thing we want to achieve is for President Obama to be a one-term president. In response to McConnell's comments, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said Wednesday that the administration is 100% focused on delivering relief to the American people and getting the pandemic under control and putting people back to work. We welcome support, engagement, and work with the Republicans on that, Psaki continued. This is what's wrong with politics in America. Mitch McConnell says that 100% of his focus is on stopping President Biden. 100% of his focus is on stopping the duly elected President of the United States. Think about that for a second. What implications does that give? Because personally, I am tired of the us versus them mentality in American politics. I am worn out and worn down by this hyper-partisanship that has taken hold of our political system on both sides of the aisle. And Mitch McConnell, when he says this, is saying the quiet part out loud. Because he's telling us in saying that all of his focus is on thwarting the Biden administration. He's telling us um, that he's not in office for the people that elected him. That in his mind, the biggest fish that he has to fry is not representing the people that put him in office and not accomplishing things on their behalf, but instead making sure that his team wins. Instead, pulling out all stops and doing whatever is necessary to make sure that he holds on to the power that he has and the position that he has. And look, I get it. I get it. Mitch McConnell is a Republican. There is currently a Democratic president. Uh, He wants his team to win. He wants his guy to win the next election. He wants to get a Republican in there. I understand that. But 100% of your focus is on stopping the president. How about focusing on representing the people that elected you? How about focusing on making sure that people in Kentucky have access to health care? How about focusing on immigration reform or on revamping the failing education system in our country, or working on correcting injustices in our prison systems, or criminal justice reform, or compromising on an infrastructure plan. 
or making sure that people have access to the vaccine or bringing back manufacturing to our country? How about focusing on ending unnecessary wars and bringing our troops home? Like to say that 100% of your focus is on stopping the other side reveals a lot about your character and about your motivation and about your mindset. This whole us versus them thing is weak, is short-sighted, and it shows that we have politicians elected who do not see themselves as servants to the public. The truth is we need the left wing and the right wing in order for this beautiful eagle to soar, as we so often say on this show. And what we need from our politicians in this country, whether they are Republican or Democrat or Independent, is not folks who are self-seeking. Not folks who are only focused on their team winning at all costs. But are people who will use their position to find compromise with the other side so they can accomplish things on behalf of the American people to enrich our lives and to make our nation a better place to live. But unfortunately, this is where we are in our country with politics right now. It's a game in which there are no winners. It's us versus them. It's Team Red and Team Blue. It's like Twitter. It's just an outrage machine. By the way, follow us on Twitter at InTheShed4. It's an outrage machine. It's just complaining about the other side, stoking the fires of outrage and defeating them at all costs. It's not about the American people. It's not about finding compromise. And it shouldn't be that way, but that's how it is right now. And uh, I hope things change. Mitch McConnell here gives us an example of what politics should not be. Unfortunately, right now, that's what it is. And uh, Mitch McConnell, slow your speech down, open your mouth more, enunciate your words, and do better. Do better. Our next story in the world of politics, more homeless residents move to hotels. On Thursday, May 7th, the city of New Orleans placed more than 150 homeless residents into temporary housing in local hotels as part of the ongoing response to the COVID-19 outbreak. The city's been working with the state, along with Unity of Greater New Orleans, to get homeless individuals off the streets to help mitigate the spread of the coronavirus among the vulnerable population. The first moves began in late March. We are committed to finding as many housing alternatives as possible, including both temporary and more permanent, for our more vulnerable residents who have become susceptible to the coronavirus, said Ellen M. Lee, director of the Office of Community and Economic Development. We continue to respond as we successfully identify additional resources to make this happen. Mayor LaToya Cantrell has said she hopes to keep homeless residents sheltered in place through July, providing additional time for city officials to expand capacity as as low-barrier shelter to help residents transition into permanent housing and provide other comprehensive services to homeless residents as the city's response to COVID-19 moves into the subsequent phases. The city announced earlier this week that it would be using some funds from the $10.4 million in affordable housing grants it received from the state to increase the number of beds available at shelters to address the nearly 400 unsheltered homeless individuals in New Orleans. Through the Shelter Expansion and Rehabilitation Program, the city expects to increase shelter capacity by 300 beds, according to an announcement about the housing grant. On Thursday, the majority of the homeless residents were identified and transported from three general locations along Calopy Street, the main branch of the public library on Loyola, and from Duncan Plaza. City officials did not make announcements about transporting homeless residents in hotels in advance. Instead, residents were notified early Thursday morning and given ID bracelets to confirm their participation in the relocation. The city and state continue to provide temporary housing for residents moved from an encampment around the intersection of Claiborne and Cleveland Avenues 
due in part to a rodent infestation following the closure of several downtown restaurants. The state is funding much of the cost for housing and services at all four hotels. Amen. Round of applause. Tip of the cap. Standing O to the city government of New Orleans, uh, to the mayor, to the director of the Office of Community and Economic Development. Job well done. The last story we shared was an example of what politics should not be, of what government should not be. This story is an example of what government should be. And uh, kudos to them for doing something to protect the most vulnerable in their society. Homelessness is a problem in every major city across our country. If you ever go to uh, a large city, you see homeless folks everywhere. And one thing I've never understood, one thing that I just don't get, is how people can just walk by every day and not care. How politicians can hold positions of power, can be over entire cities, and do absolutely nothing to help the people who need help the most in their city. Because whenever I go to a big city and I see folks that don't have a place to lay their head, it bothers me, man. It bothers me. It affects me to know that their life has gone in such a direction, whether because of addiction issues or mental health issues or because they suffered uh, trauma as a child or as an adolescent, to know that their life has ended up in such a place that they're on the street, that they have Um, no way to get out of the weather, that they have um, nowhere to sleep, that they have no safety, they have no um, basic guarantees to quality of life, it affects me. Because these are people who are made in the image of God. And these are brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children. And it could be you or I. And a lot of A lot of cities think that they're doing the right thing, that they're doing the kind thing by just letting these people be, by just kind of ignoring them, by giving them carte blanche to go and do as they please. Um, See California, see Los Angeles, for example. And it really doesn't help address the root issues. It doesn't fix anything. It just exasperates the problem and makes it worse for those people. Then you have some cities like one close to me that actually make it illegal for you to be homeless because they don't want you to be seen because homeless people are bad for tourism. A city near me has made it illegal to sleep in your car or on a park bench. They have set it up where if you are feeding people without a certain permit that is hard to get, you will be fined and ticketed. More time than once they have... uh, voted not to allow shelters to be built or put in place because they just don't want homeless people in their city. And it's wrong. The way to fix this problem, the way to address it, is to take a comprehensive approach. Not just to ignore the people, not to outlaw the people, not to chase them off, but to address all of the root causes that lead to homelessness. To address mental health. To take care of our troops when they come home from war. Because uh, if it wasn't so sad, it would almost be comedic to me how many politicians harp on and talk about our troops, and yet they do nothing 
to take care of our homeless community, our transient community. And an overwhelming majority of the homeless folks that I have gotten to know over the years are veterans. They are people who have served our country in the Air Force and the Army and the Navy, who have spent time overseas, who have risked their lives, who have borne the brunt of war, and then they come home, they hit some hard times, and we're not there for them like they were for us. You may not be aware, but an overwhelming majority of homeless people are not homeless because they are lazy. They actually have jobs or are trying actively to get jobs, but if you don't have nice clothes to wear to a job interview, and if you don't have transportation, and if you don't have a government-issued ID, and if you don't have a phone or a way to follow up on job interviews or even to find out if you got the job, it can become pretty hard to get or to hold down a job. So you've got to address things comprehensively. You've got to have job programs. You gotta work on affordable housing and evictions. You gotta address the war on drugs. You need criminal justice reform. You need accessible health care, food programs, programs to address issues of addiction and mental health. I recently saw one city, I can't remember um, where it was, but they actually had taken uh, a, a rundown um, park or, or a place where a school used to be that was demolished. And they, they built a lot of tiny homes, and they made like a village, and uh, they're housing their homeless population in those tiny homes. And they have a whole program set up, and uh, you have to actually do some things to be a part of the program in order to, to stay. But they give you a house. Um, they give you resources to, to groceries and to food. Um, they put you in a job. Uh, they give you opportunities to get uh, government-issued ID. Um, they give you access Uh, to counseling, access to to services to address issues of addiction and mental health. That's the way to go. We need more cities that are willing to step up to the plate, more governments, more politicians, more leaders who are willing to step up to the plate and address this thing comprehensively because in a country like ours, the richest in the history of the world, there's no excuse for allowing other people who are made in the image of God to suffer needlessly. And I know, I know that some people are there Um, are homeless because they choose to be or because they uh, can't face up to the decisions in life that they have made um, or they're there because of the decisions that they have made. I know that some of them suffer from different things. I get that. I get that. But something has to be done and something can be done. We know the ways to help these folks. And for the most part, if we offer a hand up, not charity, but a hand up, just an opportunity for folks to get back on their feet, you will be surprised how many people take advantage of that opportunity and change their life around. So kudos to the city of New Orleans. Job well done to the mayor. I hope that for them, uh, this is just a first step in a comprehensive plan. I hope that even after the pandemic is over, that they will continue to do things necessary in order to help this vulnerable population. And I I hope that it will be an example to other cities, that other cities will follow suit, that other mayors um, other governments, other local governments will follow suit, and this will become a thing um, not only that is applauded, but is expected uh, from our government to take care of its people. Um, our churches need to do a better job. Our communities need to be a, do a better job, and so do our cities. Our next story, Neera Tandon appointed White House Senior Advisor. Neera Tandon has been appointed as a senior advisor to U.S. President Joe Biden, 
two months after she withdrew her nomination as director of the White House Office of Management and Budget due to stiff opposition from Republican senators. Tandon has been entrusted with two tasks to launch a review of the U.S. Digital Service and to plan contingencies that could result from the Supreme Court's consideration of Republican lawsuits seeking to strike down the Affordable Care Act. Tandon, 50, is currently the president and CEO of a progressive think tank, Center for American Progress. In March, she faced a tough time for the confirmation of her nomination as director of White House Office of Management and Budget over her past social media outbursts against several lawmakers, including those from her own Democratic Party. She became the Biden administration's only cabinet nominee rebuffed by the Senate. (sighs) I thought we were done with Neera Tandon. I thought that we had won and that we could put her nomination or her having a role in this administration behind us. But alas, that is not the case. Back in March when Mrs. Tandon was nominated by Joe Biden uh, for the position of Director of Office of Management and Budget, uh, we came out and spoke out definitively against that appointment. We said on this show that it was a bad idea and that um, she had disqualified herself from being in that position and that if President Biden was serious about being the uniter-in-chief, as he has so said, that this was something that would go in stark contrast to that idea. Um, on In the Shed with West, I will talk about politicians, Republican and Democrat. I'll tell you the things they do that are good, the things they do that are bad. We'll call it how we see it. Um, we might talk about decisions they make or things that they say or the way that they vote. One thing that we will not do very often on this show is attack the character of a politician because we don't do reactionary politics. We don't stoke the fires of outrage we're not over the top or bombastic, but, but, but in this case, it is clear to me that Neera Tandon's actions and behavior and choices over many years um, and that her record clearly disqualifies her from a position in this administration. Uh, Neera Tandon did not get blocked from her appointment by Republican senators. That is not correct. She got opposed by Republican senators. The reason she was blocked is because the progressive wing of the Democratic Party was also very much against her appointment. And if AOC and Ted Cruz both agree that you do not belong in the White House, yo, you might not belong in the White House. Those people don't agree on much of anything. It's not just that Neera Tandon tweeted some mean things is that she tweeted some absolutely vitriolic things um, against Bernie Sanders supporters, against Trump supporters, and even against Bernie Sanders himself once calling him a fake Jew. Not only that, but Neera Tandon has suggested that we overthrow Libya's government so that we can take their oil, which I find despicable. She has repeatedly suggested making cuts to both Medicaid and Social Security. She's been repeatedly hostile to journalists, even punching a reporter who dared ask a question about Hillary Clinton's vote to go to war with Iraq. Neera Tandon is bought and paid for by lobbyist corporations and foreign governments. The think tank that she runs, CAP, has taken in millions and millions of dollars from foreign governments. 
Neurotandon staunchly defended each and every position held by Hillary Clinton, even when proven to be a terrible position, and has backed Hillary Clinton at every turn, a candidate who was so flawed that it resulted in the election of Donald Trump. She opposes universal health care. She's pro-war. She has a record of mistreating and being verbally abusive to her staff. Um, her appointment, her nomination caused an outrage by both Republicans, conservatives um, in the Republican Party, and progressives in the Democratic Party. So President Biden's answer to that is to then appoint her to something. Her nomination wasn't going to be approved, so he just appointed her to a position. Essentially, this is a middle finger to progressives who Biden promised to work with in order to get their support. Um, the same progressives that he said, if you will support me, if you'll throw your support behind me so that it can push me across the finish line, you will have a seat at the table. And now he has sat near a tandem at that same table. And in order to get an appointment with President Biden, you're going to have to go through her. And she ain't got no time for you. She is not interested in what you are selling. She is not picking up what you are putting down. So on In the Shed with West, we're going to keep it a buck with you. I'm very disappointed in this appointment. Um, I think it goes against everything that President Biden said his presidency will be about. And uh, I just hope that he will be a man of his word, that he will keep his promise, that he will work hard uh, to find compromise with Republicans who are in office, that he will also work with the progressive wing of his own party, um, that he will work hard to find places of unity. Um, this ain't it. This ain't it, big dog. Listen, fat, this ain't it. So uh, disappointed to see that we are not through with Neerotandon. Neerotandon rides again. And unfortunately, this time, there is nothing that we can do about it. Our last story in the world of politics, Florida student accused of rigging homecoming queen vote could face 16-year sentence. A Florida high school student accused of rigging her school's election will be charged as an adult. Emily Grover and her mother, Laura Carroll, assistant principal at Bellevue Elementary School, were arrested in March after authorities said the duo used Carroll's special access to the district student data system to cast hundreds of fraudulent votes for Grover in the homecoming queen election at Tate High School. Grover was arrested when she was 17 years old, but turned 18 on April 16th. This is not unusual with young people of that age said Assistant State Attorney John Mulchin. Juvenile court cannot do anything or supervise them after they become 18, so it just makes better sense to move them into adult court where they can be supervised effectively. While Grover will be charged as an adult, the court still has the ability to impose juvenile sanctions. Carol remains free on a $6,000 bond, and Grover is free on a $2,000 bond. Prosecutors said the mother and daughter each face a maximum 16-year sentence. They're each charged with offenses against users of computers, computer systems, computer networks, and electronic devices, a third-degree felony, unlawful use of a two-way communication device, a third-degree felony, criminal use of personally identifiable information, a third-degree felony, and conspiracy to commit these offenses, a first-degree misdemeanor. In October, the Escambia County School District's election software application flagged hundreds of votes in the homecoming election as fraudulent, causing the district to contact the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. An investigation revealed the two ultimately cast 246 fraudulent votes across two devices, according to authorities. At about the same time, the district's student council coordinator was notified that Grover had allegedly talked about using her mom's Focus account with district-wide access to cast votes, according to arrest warrants.
Focus is the student data system where parents, teachers, and students can access information like grades and health records. The investigation also found that Grover openly used her mother's account to access other students' profiles. Law enforcement officials collected nine statements from students and a teacher who said they either heard Grover talking about accessing the account or watched her log onto it over the course of four years. FDLE spokeswoman Jessica Carey said the investigation into that matter was ongoing. Grover was ultimately expelled from Tate High School, according to her arrest warrant. Carroll was suspended from her position after the arrest. School officials have declined to say whether they have since terminated Carroll, citing the ongoing court case. Yo, what are you doing? What are you doing, Mama? This lady cares so much about whether or not her teenage daughter is elected homecoming queen that she will put her job in jeopardy. She cares so much whether her teenage daughter gets the crown at homecoming that she will put her paycheck on the line. That's crazy. That's crazy. What are you doing, mama? Why do you care so much if your daughter is elected homecoming queen? What's in it for you? What do you get? Are you so insistent on living vicariously through your daughter that you risk your very ability to provide for your family? Like, hey, you can mark my words, tools. I will never live vicariously through my children. I will celebrate their victories. I will be with them when they are down and out. But, hey, I got my own life. I got my own thing going on. I'm doing me, and I'm busy. Like, if your daughter ain't going to win homecoming queen, just let your daughter not win homecoming queen. Like, I think it's important for kids to lose sometimes. I think it's an important part of life to learn that you are not the best at everything you do. I think that it helps you develop humility and self-awareness. Sometimes, there's going to be people who are better looking than you. Probably not better looking than my children, but hey. Sometimes there will be people who are smarter than you. Probably not smarter than my children, but A. Sometimes there will be people who are better musically, who are more talented, or who are better at athletics than you are. It is a part of life. You do not always win. And I get it. Like, she logged into the student accounts and had access to their health records, their behavioral record their grades, and, like, that is a no-no. Like, you cannot do that. But is this really something that warrants being charged with three felonies and a misdemeanor? I'm not defending the girl. I'm certainly not defending her mama. But I'm just saying, 16 years possibly in prison for trying to fix the homecoming queen election seems a little bit crazy. On the one hand, it's certainly crazy to care that much about winning homecoming queen. But then to send somebody to jail for 16 years for caring that much about winning homecoming queen also seems a little bit crazy to me. That's just me. I'm sure she won't actually get 16 years, but to me, this is a situation where uh, the girl should be expelled, and she was. The mama should be fired, and I'm sure she will be, and she will have a very difficult time ever getting a job at a school again, which she should. But 16 years, 
Nah. Maybe a little bit of jail time to teach him a lesson. Certainly probation, community service, maybe a, a hefty fine. But 16 years. Side note, this story is happening in Pensacola, Florida, which is 45 minutes from the shed. Yeah, that's just right down the road, my babies. 45 minutes away from where your boy sits right now. Pensacola, Florida, the place that I was born. Fun fact. Hey, my mom is a teacher. Both of my sisters are teachers. I ain't logging into nothing. And I do not care if I or my daughter or anyone in my family ever gets elected homecoming queen. That's all for the world of politics. Let's switch to this, the world of sports, and let's hit the headlines. Johnny Manziel says he made a decent living while in college selling autographs. John Morant's father says he's now pulling for the Utah Jazz after they showed his family love. Buccaneers quarterback coach says knee injury may have bothered Tom Brady all season last year. The Detroit Lions are interested in signing running back Todd Gurley. Quarterback Pat Mahomes is ready for action after recovering from toe injury. Patriots offensive coordinator Josh McDaniels sees a year-two leap ahead for Cam Newton. The Washington Wizards have yet to make a decision on the future of coach Scott Brooks. Virginia Tech freshman football player charged with murder. Former LSU tight end Eric Gilbert is now transferring to Georgia. And the Detroit Pistons add former Michigan coach John Beeline to staff in a player development role. The Atlanta Braves won a game the other day, 20-1. to And you know what that means? Absolutely nothing. We don't talk baseball on this show. Let's talk some NFL football. And let's talk about my favorite coach, the most entertaining coach in all of the NFL, Dan the Man Campbell, Detroit Lions head football coach, Dan the Man Campbell. If you remember, we have talked about Dan Campbell on the show before because when he was hired, he had his opening press conference and he said this. All right, here's what I do know is that this team is going to take on the identity of this city, all right, and the city's been been down and it found a way to get up all right it's found a way to uh overcome adversity all right and so this team's going to be built on uh we're going to kick you in the teeth all right and when you punch us back we're going to smile at you and when you knock us down we're going to get up and on the way up we're going to bite a kneecap off all right and we're going to stand up and then it's going to take two more shots to knock us down all right and on the way up we're going to take your other kneecap and we're going to get up, and then it's going to take three shots to get us down. And when we do, we're going to take another honk out of you. Before before long, we're the, going to be the last one standing. Dan Campbell, crazy. Dan Campbell, a wild man. Dan Campbell talking about you going to knock us down, and on the way up, we're going to bite your kneecap. He talking about some cannibalism, the knee bone connected to the shin bone connected to the... Dan Campbell is a fool, a full-fledged fool. And he's back at it again. Because not only did he talk about biting kneecaps in his opening press conference, but your boy went on a podcast. And on the podcast the other day, Dan Campbell said this. I'll tell you what I would really love to do just in general. And I've talked to Sheila about this. I I don't think we're going to be able to do it, but I would love to literally just have a pet line. Yes! 
just a legit pet line on a chain. And he just, he really is my pet. We just walk around the building. We go out to practice. We're in seven on seven. We're behind the kicker when he's kicking. We're just... (laughs) There we are you know on the I mean? sidelines. Yeah, yeah. You should. You know what you should do is you should get you should get two of them and put them on each sideline. Just teach the guys not to go out of bounds. Don't try to be. Don't don't avoid contact. And I, on command, you could train him. Like if one of your groups isn't doing well, you could just take him over to their section and just have him take a dump right there in the middle of where their <laughs> section is at, and then bring him on back. Yes. I mean, think about it. It'd be outstanding. Before, I, before the game, you could walk the Lions up and down the opponent's sideline and have yeah. them pee and poop all over the sideline, yeah. and then they have to deal with that all game. Yeah. That would be that would be outstanding. We're going somewhere. The problem is I don't know if Peter's going to allow that. It's yeah, I don't think so. I don't... Knew, though, we would take great care of it. It would be fed well. It would be petted. It would be manicured. I might end up losing an arm because of it, but that would be even better, you know, because it would validate what this is a freaking – this is a creature now. This is an animal. This thing is this is from the wild. Would, yes. would you give up an arm just to motivate your team? Ooh. Possibly. For a Super Bowl. If I said, uh, Dan Campbell, you are going to win a Super Bowl in Detroit. Yes. yes. There it is. Dan Campbell, crazy. Not only does this man talk about cannibalism in his opening press conference as head coach of the Detroit Lions, but now this man says he want to bring an actual literal lion on a chain onto the practice field to take a dump behind the kicker to intimidate his offensive line, and that he would even sacrifice an arm to that line if it meant winning a Super Bowl in Detroit. This man, crazy. I can't lie. I'm going to be watching the Detroit Lions this year, man. I want to see what happens with Dan Campbell. And if you watch, like, full interviews with this guy, like, he's not a dumb dude. Like, Dan Campbell, he's charismatic. Um, He's actually a pretty smart guy. When he was the interim coach of the Miami Dolphins, uh, they improved a lot. So I'm not even saying that he's going to be a bad head coach. I'm just saying that he's crazy. If I'm a team owner, uh, this whole alpha male dumb jock vibe that Dan Campbell is sending out into the universe might not be the look that I want for my head coach. I'm just saying. But Dan Campbell, crazy. I kind of feel like maybe Dan Campbell, um, I know he said this sort of tongue-in-cheek, but I kind of feel like maybe he was serious that he actually might have had a conversation with the team owner and been like, um, I want to get a lion. And had she said, like, I think we can do that, he would have been like, yes. I finally get a lion. And Dan Campbell probably wouldn't have had that lion on a chain. Dan Campbell would have rolled that lion into practice. Because that's who Dan Campbell is. He crazy. Dan Campbell might be a lion. He is the Lions head coach. The next story that we want to cover this week in the NFL is the newest tight end that everyone is talking about, one Timothy Tebow. That's right, people. Tim Tebow is back, not as a quarterback, but he's trying to make the roster of the Jacksonville Jaguars as a tight end. And we didn't talk about this story on our last podcast, even though it was already rumored that Urban Meyer and crew were going to sign Tim Tebow, uh, because it really was much ado about nothing. It really wasn't a story. And even now, it's not really that much of a story, except that it involves Tim Tebow. And anything that involves Tim Tebow is first page news. 
because people love Tim Tebow and because people despise Tim Tebow. And to be honest, I don't really get it because Tim Tebow is a hardworking guy. He's a person of good character. He's a good role model for the young people. And uh, all that has happened is that he's been invited to training camp. Tim Tebow hasn't made a roster. And the Jacksonville Jaguars are a terrible football team. They were terrible last year. That's why they had the number one pick and they picked Trevor Lawrence. They have their quarterback. And uh, now Tim Tebow has been given an opportunity to make the team. He hasn't even made the team yet. The Jaguars have five or six tight ends who are trying to make the roster. They had two tight ends that were on the team last year. Um, They got Tim Tebow, someone else came in, and then they drafted a tight end out of Ohio State in the fifth round of the draft. It is no guarantee that Tim Tebow makes this team. He's just being given a chance. And Jaguars head coach Urban Meyer is in his first stint as an NFL coach. So who is someone that he knows, that he trusts implicitly, that he can put around his squad that he feels like would be a good influence and that would help build the type of culture that he desires to have in Jacksonville? Tim Tebow. And who lives three doors down from Urban Meyer in Jacksonville and is trying to figure out what his next step will be and where his career will take him next? Tim Tebow. So all that's really happening here is a head coach and a football player who have a relationship from the past, who respect each other, who know each other, have given each other a wink and a nod. Um, They're doing something that might be beneficial to each of them. And Tim Tebow has been invited and has an opportunity to make this team Sometimes it is who you know and not what you know. On ESPN, they keep saying Tim Tebow has never played tight end before. Um, Actually, he did in ninth grade. He scored 12 touchdowns, but A, that's a different story. But look, we have seen people who have never played tight end before, who have never played college football before, um, come off of a basketball court and have a Hall of Fame career at tight end in the NFL. So am I offended that Tim Tebow gets this opportunity? No, I'm not. If he's good enough, maybe he'll make the roster. If they have a spot for him, um, if he can prove that he can block, that he can catch, uh, that he can run routes, that he can play special teams, then maybe he'll be the third tight end on the roster. And if so, it's because he's put in the work and he's proven himself. He's won over the coaching staff, the position coaches, and his teammates. And if not, then Urban Meyer and Tim Tebow shake hands. Urban Meyer says, Timmy, you tried hard. You worked hard. Thank you for putting in some time with us. Would you like to be the team chaplain or assistant coach? And if not, have a great career in broadcasting. That's all that's happening here. Tim Tebow has a chance. And I'm not offended by anyone getting a chance. That don't threaten me at all. It's plenty of people uh, who are upset about this, but it's, this is not some guy off the street just getting put there because he knows the head coach. This is one of the greatest college football players who's ever played. And this is a guy who's already played in the NFL, granted, six or seven years ago. And when he did play in the NFL, everyone and their mama wanted him to be a tight end. So this makes sense. This hurts no one. And it don't bother me at all. All right, next, let's talk some NBA playoffs. And let's take a look at the play-in tournament. In the East, I was right about the Pacers absolutely running over the Charlotte Hornets. But I was wrong about Boston being beat by the Washington Wizards. And I was wrong about the Pacers making the playoffs. In the West, I was right about the Grizzlies beating the Spurs. And I was right about the Lakers beating the Warriors. But I was wrong about the Warriors making the playoffs. Of course, John Morant and the Grizzlies made it instead. 
When the first round of the playoffs was happening, I was a bit under the weather and unable to record a show that week. I had no voice, and uh, so I had actually tweeted out uh, my predictions for the first round on Twitter. Follow us at in the shed four. That's at sign and then in the shed four. And uh, I had the 76ers over the Wizards in a sweep. It took five games, but I was right there. I also had the Nets over the Celtics in four. That also took five, so another gentleman sweep, but I was correct there too. I took the Bucks in six, and it only took them four games. They swept the Miami Heat, who looked absolutely apathetic and horrible. And I had the Atlanta Hawks beating the New York Knicks in seven, and it only take, took them and it only took them five games. In the Western Conference, I had the Jazz over the Grizzlies in six. They won in five. I had the Lakers over the Suns in six, and actually the Suns defeated the Lakers in six, so I was wrong there. Uh, at the time of my prediction, I did not foresee the injury to Anthony Davis. I think that made all the difference in the world. If Anthony Davis were healthy, uh, I think he and LeBron moved past the Suns, but alas, the Suns have won there. I had the Nuggets over the Blazers and was correct, and I had the Mavs over the Clippers in six. Um, game six happened last night, and the Clippers actually evened the series up. That one goes to a game seven. So most of our second-round matchups are set in the Eastern Conference. You have the Philadelphia 76ers against the Atlanta Hawks, and I got news for you. I got news for you. If you think that the Philadelphia 76ers without a healthy Joel Embiid, are just going to walk past the Atlanta Hawks, let me tell you, you got another thing coming. The Atlanta Hawks are a much better team than most people realize. I've been trying to tell y'all all year that Trey Young is a top five point guard in the league this season, and in his series against the New York Knicks, he absolutely lit up Madison Square Garden. In game five, Trey Young was awesome. Off the pick and roll, he was finding the open man, um... He was getting into the paint. He was hitting the three-point shot. Uh, when he hit a three to put the Knicks away, he took a couple steps back to half court and took a, a bow, playing the role of a villain. Reggie Miller was on the game, and he, of course, was loving that. Uh, if Joel Embiid is healthy, the 76ers are the better team, and they probably win this series. But if he is not, if he's less than 75%, if he's not effective, or if he doesn't play at all, the Atlanta Hawks have a chance to to upset the 76ers. I know y'all don't watch the Hawks. They're not on TV very often. They're one of the two teams I keep up with the most. Um, I love the the acquisitions they made in the offseason. I told you guys uh, in our NBA preview that the Atlanta Hawks would be the fourth or fifth seed in the East, and they proved me correct. I didn't think that the addition of Rajon Rondo would work out, and it didn't. They traded him for Lou Will, which was a good move for the Hawks. But their addition of Gallinari to come off the bench and add some firepower was a good one. Their addition of Bogdanovich to be their starting shooting guard has worked out tremendously. And to have Clint Capella as their center, uh, he just fits perfectly. Catching the lobs, doing the pick and roll with Trey Young, um, cleaning the glass. If Joel Embiid is not playing, he's going to give the 76ers front court fits. An old Dwight Howard is not going to keep up with Clint Capella. So I'm not quite ready to pick the Hawks to win this series yet. I want to wait till Sunday and see if Joel Embiid plays in Game 1, how that one goes. But if you're a 76ers fan, you better hope that the 76ers don't give Game 1 to Atlanta because that's the same mistake that the New York Knicks made. They let the Hawks come into the Garden and take home court advantage, and it gave the Hawks confidence, and they won. 
And if the Hawks go into uh, the 76ers arena and steal game one, the 76ers are going to have a tough time. In the East, you also have the Milwaukee Bucks versus the Brooklyn Nets. That is going to be a series to watch. I can't wait to see that game tonight. Because of all teams in the league, the Bucks probably match up with the Nets the best. Because Giannis can actually guard Kevin Durant. He can't stop him, but he can guard him. And Drew Holiday, uh, he can guard Kyrie Irving. Drew Holiday is one of the better defenders at the guard position in the league. And Chris Middleton can at least body up James Harden and slow him down. I know I've been very critical of the Bucks' playoff chances on this podcast because of past performances. Um, when the Bucks have made the playoffs in the past, teams have just packed the paint and they have made Giannis into a shooter, which he is not. And uh, what that has done is it made Chris Middleton responsible for carrying the load offensively, and Chris Middleton is not a one. But like the Hawks, the Bucks have made some really good additions in the offseason. And adding a player like Drew Holiday, who can play defense, uh, who can add toughness, who can um, create his own shot, who can knock down a three, adding a player like P.J. Tucker, who can make the corner three, who can add toughness, who can play defense, Adding a player like Bobby Portis who can rebound, who can add toughness, who can play defense, who can hit a three. Um, it's really alleviated a lot of the strain that was on the Bucks in past playoff runs. And it's made them a better team. Mike Budenholzer is going up against a coach in Steve Nash and an assistant in Mike D'Antoni. Um, Steve Nash who has no experience as a head coach and D'Antoni who is an offensive coach but does not interest himself in defense. And uh, Budenholzer has a chance uh, to scheme some things up and to put a plan together that can be effective against this Nets team. And this is a really interesting series to me because you have one team that has a star in Giannis and actually has some pieces added around him now who plays good team basketball, who plays defense, who can also shoot a little bit. And then you have a team like the Nets who do not care about defense at all but who also have three of the best scorers in the game. I don't think there is a team that can stop the Nets. But if the Bucks can slow them down, they may have a chance in this series. I put out to our Twitter followers our 220 of them, which is not bad considering we have just had Twitter two weeks. Follow us at In the Shed 4 I put out a poll, who do you think will win this playoff matchup, the Bucks or the Nets? And 71% of you guys said the Bucks. I was surprised. Out West, you have the Jazz, who will be taking on the winner of the Mavs and the Clippers series. And the Jazz are a team that we have not paid any attention to. We have not um, talked about them at all. Nobody has talked about them at all um, because they are just very businesslike. They play defense. They hit the three. Um, they got a star player in Donovan Mitchell. They have... Uh, a good post defender in Rudy Gobert, a rim protector. They have role players and they have scores off the bench, um, a good coach in Quinn Snyder. And uh, they're capable of beating either the Mavs or the Clippers, whichever team wins. The Jazz are very capable of beating either of them. But I think the one thing the Jazz are hoping is that the Clippers do not win Game 7 in Los Angeles. Because in my estimation, the Jazz match up much better with a team like the Mavs than they do with the Los Angeles Clippers. Because the, the one thing the Clippers have 
is wing players who can create their own shot and who play defense. They've got them in spades. And that's one thing the Jazz don't have. The Jazz have a good star guard. The Jazz have a center. They don't have any wings that can match up with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Luka Doncic is playing uh, better than anyone in the playoffs up until last night. In game six with an opportunity to put away the Clippers, he wasn't aggressive on the offensive end. He allowed himself to be double teamed. Um, He passed the ball too much. Uh, He drove to pass, not to score. And he only scored 19 points and they lost the game. Kawhi Leonard looked like Kawhi Leonard of old. He scored 45 points, a career playoff high, and uh, forced a Game 7. I look forward to seeing uh, Game 7 between the Mavs and the Clippers. This is a weird series because the road team has won every game so far. So will that hold up and will the Mavs win in Game 7 at the Staples Center? Or will the Clippers move on? Adam Silver hopes that the Clippers will move on. The other matchup in the West is the Suns versus the Nuggets. And the Suns are a good basketball team. Uh, Devin Booker has played great in the playoffs. He was the best player in the series against the Lakers. Aiton has been a force in the middle. Uh, The Suns have a lot of talent on their roster. But Chris Paul is also hurt. As is customary for his team, uh, he made them a lot better just having him on the roster this year. He helped build a culture there in one year for Phoenix. But then the playoffs came, and now he's hurt. And I'm not sure without a healthy Chris Paul about the Suns beating the Nuggets. Because I know that Jamal Murray is out for the Nuggets, but the Joker is the real deal. And Mike Malone is a good head coach. And the Nuggets are a tough team. Michael Porter is coming into his own. Paul Millsap is good off the bench. The Nuggets just seem like a team that can find a way to win. So the second round of the playoffs is almost set. 76ers versus Hawks, Bucks versus Nets. Jazz versus the winner of the Mavs and the Clippers, and the Suns versus the Nuggets. I'm going to put my picks out Sunday evening on Twitter. Going to go ahead and pick each of those second-round matchups, and uh, we'll see how we do. Um, Did pretty well in the first round, didn't I? Got almost every series correct. If you want to know the real, if you want to know what's going to happen, tune in to In the Shed with Wes Anderson. We're going to give it to you. Our last story in the world of sports, our In the Shed with Wes, SEC West Division preview. Yeah. On our last episode, we ran through the SEC East and gave our predictions of how we think things will shake out there, how those teams will stack up. And this week, we're going to take a look at the SEC West, um, one through seven, and let you know how we see that division shaping up this upcoming season. Finishing seventh place in the SEC West, I have the Mississippi State Bulldogs. Mississippi State is in the second year for head coach Mike Leach. They do have quarterback Will Rogers returning. I expect him to have a better season, and their offense is going to have to be a lot better because they were awful last year. And a lot of it might have had to do with the fact that there wasn't much of an offseason. Mike Leach's system is one that is hard to pick up if there is not an offseason. Their defense is going to have to be solid again this year. Last year, the Bulldogs went 4-7. and seven. This year, I have them going 4-8 and eight and 1-7 and seven in the SEC. I think Mississippi State beats Louisiana Tech. NC State 
Vanderbilt, and Tennessee State, and I think they lose to everybody else. I like Mike Leach. He's a lot of fun. He's a good football coach. Um, maybe things will work out for him in Mississippi State, but I don't think this will be the year that you see it on the field. Finishing sixth in the SEC West, I have the Arkansas Razorbacks. Arkansas has lost quarterback Felipe Franks, and he was not the best or the second or the third best quarterback in the SEC last year, but he was a steady veteran presence. Um, This is the second year for Coach Sam Pittman, who has already received an extension. Arkansas went 3-7 last year, which was much better than the year or two before that. This year, I think they show improvement again, and I think they go 5-7 and 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 2-6 in the SEC. I see Arkansas beating Rice, Georgia Southern, Arkansas Pine Bluff, upsetting Missouri and beating Mississippi State, and I have them losing to Texas, Texas A&M, Georgia, Ole Miss, Auburn, Alabama, and LSU, and I have the Razorbacks finishing sixth in the division. Finishing fifth in the SEC West, I have the Auburn Tigers. Gus Malzahn is out. Brian Harson is in from Boise State. Auburn lost their top three receivers from last year's team in Seth Williams, Anthony Schwartz, and Eli Stove. They do have quarterback Bo Nix returning, and he's going to have to have a much better junior season than he did freshman or sophomore if they're going to be successful. They do have talent, though. They have Tank Bixby at running back, who is one of the better running backs in the SEC and might be one of the better running backs in the country this season. They have kicker Anders Carlson, who is one of the best in the country. And they do have a lot of returning offensive linemen with experience, but those offensive linemen are going to have to come together and play much better as a unit if Auburn's going to have success this year. Last year, Auburn went 6-5. and five. This year, I think they go 8-4 and 4-4 four and four and four in the SEC. I think Auburn beats Akron, Alabama State, Penn State, Georgia State, Arkansas, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, and South Carolina. And I think they lose to LSU, Georgia, Texas A&M, and Alabama. Finishing fourth in the SEC West, I have the LSU Tigers. Ed Ogeron is in full rebuild mode after winning the national championship. They had a disappointing season last year. This year they're breaking in two new coordinators, but of course they have plenty of talent. Last year they went 5-5. Five and five. This year I think that they go 8-4 and four also and 4-4 four and four in the SEC as well. I think LSU beats UCLA, McNeese, Central Michigan, Mississippi State, Auburn, Florida, Arkansas, and Louisiana Monroe. And I have LSU losing on the road to Kentucky at Ole Miss, at Alabama, and versus Texas A&M. Finishing third in the SEC West, I have the Ole Miss Rebels. Ole Miss returns quarterback Matt Corral, who had a prolific season last year, um, but they also return most of their defense, which may or may not be a good thing. Ole Miss's defense was absolutely horrible last year. They were horrible. And if they can put a defense on the field this year that is league average, Uh, I think they have a chance to really surprise some people. Um, Lane Kiffin is a good head coach. Last year, Ole Miss went 5-5. This year, I think they go 8-4 and 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 5-3 in the SEC. I have Ole Miss beating Louisville, Austin Peay, Tulane, Arkansas, Tennessee, LSU, Vanderbilt, and Mississippi State. And I have them losing to Alabama, Auburn, Liberty, and Texas A&M. I have Ole Miss finishing third in the SEC West. Finishing second in the SEC West, I have the Alabama Crimson Tide. Alabama and Nick Saban lost a lot of talent from their offense in quarterback Mac Jones, running back Najee Harris, wide receivers Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddell. Uh, They do have a new quarterback stepping in who is, of course, a five-star recruit in Bryce Young. 
Um, last year, Alabama went 13 0, won the national championship. This year, I have them going 11 and 1, losing only on the road to Texas A&M, which means that the team I have winning the SEC West and finishing in first place, the Texas A&M Aggies. Texas A&M does lose quarterback Kellen Mond, but they have running back Isaiah Spiller, who is one of the best in the country, and Jimbo Fisher, who is a great head coach, and their recruiting has picked up tremendously in the last couple of seasons, finally providing them the depth, the quality of depth at each position necessary to compete with the top teams in the SEC. Last year, Texas A&M went 9-1. and This year, I'm going to predict that they go 12-0. and A couple of key games to watch are versus Alabama and at LSU. So those are my predictions. I have Texas A&M finishing first, Alabama finishing second, Ole Miss third, LSU fourth, Auburn fifth, Arkansas 6th, and Mississippi State 7th. If I'm being honest, which I always am with you, my tools, I am not as confident in my SEC West predictions as I am in my SEC East predictions. Um, I am pretty confident that Mississippi State and Arkansas will occupy the last two spots in the division, but the rest is up for grabs because Auburn, LSU, and Ole Miss, any of those teams could easily switch positions. I believe that Ole Miss will surprise teams, will have a great season, but if their defense looks like it did last year, they have no chance. And I picked LSU to finish fourth. Um, I think that they will rebound. They do have a lot of talent, but they also had a lot of talent last year, and they were not a good football team. So LSU is a type of team that could make a big jump and finish second in the league, or they could be down at fifth. And then with Auburn, it's Brian Harson's first season on the Plains. And a lot of how their season goes will depend on their offensive line and their quarterback play. Because if Auburn's offensive line is better than expected, if they are one of the better offensive lines in the league and they play ball control and run the ball with Tank Bigsby, um, they're going to have a better defense than advertised. They have good special teams. They could sneak up on some people. They could surprise some people. If their offensive line is not dominant, they could look lost. If Bo Nix does not show improvement, they could look lost. So between Auburn, LSU, and Ole Miss, that is my best guess that Ole Miss finishes ahead of the pack and then LSU and Auburn. And even with Alabama and Texas A&M, it's hard to pick anybody over Alabama. Nick Saban is the greatest football coach in the history of college coaching. And I'm an Auburn fan, and I'm telling you, he's the best. But they lost a lot off of their offense. And we don't know what Bryce Young is going to bring, what he's going to look like. Uh, They still have talent on the offensive line and at running back. Um, Their receiving group is going to be the worst in the last few years. It will still be good, but it won't be near what it was the last couple years when it was a stable of NFL-wide receivers. And uh, with Texas A&M, it hangs on the quarterback position. If they have a quarterback that can step in and be above average, um, they don't have to be Kellen Mond, but if, if they're above average, their defense, their running game, their receiving core, um, their pool of talent is going to be good enough to surprise a lot of teams and to be one of the best, if not the best team, in the SEC West. But if they don't get good quarterback play, they could slide a couple spots down as well. So while I don't have total confidence in my predictions, the name of the game is Making Predictions, and these are my predictions. Texas A&M will be your SEC West division winner. That's all for the world of sports. Let's switch to the world of the paranormal. 
And for our first story, we take you off the coast of Ireland. Did sea monsters attack two German U-boats off the coast of Ireland during World War I? The first sea monster sighting occurred on July 30, 1915, off the waters of Fastnet Rock, which is 60 miles off the coast of Ireland. According to German U-boat captain Friar George G. von Forster, his U-23 Schmidt was prowling the waters off Fastnet Rock when they came across the Iberian, a British cargo steamer, which was carrying trucks and jeeps for the Allied war effort. The German sub fired a torpedo at the cargo ship, creating an immense hole in her bow, sending all 61 crew members and vehicles to a watery grave. About 25 seconds after the Iberian sank, there was a massive underwater explosion caused by the hundreds of gallons of gasoline on board igniting. The explosion set off a massive water plume, sending wreckage in all directions and badly damaging the German U-boat. Aside from sending wreckage everywhere, the explosion allegedly sent some sort of giant sea monster 80 feet into the air. According to the submarine crew, the creature was described as a 60-foot-long aquatic reptile similar to a crocodile with a head that tapered to a point, a long pointed tail, and four webbed feet. We'll never know for sure what they saw or if it was actually a sea monster at all, but based on their description, the crew saw a Mosasaurus, an aquatic reptile that was supposed to have gone extinct 66 million years ago. Three years later, on April 30, 1918, a British patrol boat off the coast of Ireland spotted a German U-boat and fired a torpedo, but did not receive any returning fire. The Brits were surprised because they were expecting a battle to ensue and were further shocked by how willing the Germans were to surrender. According to German U-boat commander Captain Gunther Kreck, the previous night the crew surfaced to recharge the sub's batteries, but as they floated up, a massive sea monster crawled up on the side of the vessel. The creature apparently had giant eyes, devilish horns, and rows of knife-like teeth. According to the crew, the creature attacked the forward-mounted gun, latching on with its mouth in an attempt to tear apart the ship. The terrified crew fired their guns, but it barely deterred the creature. The monster twisted the sub upside down, and moments away from sinking, the soldiers unloaded their guns on it in one last-ditch effort, finally managing to dislodge the creature. The sub was so badly damaged, the Germans couldn't submerge below the waves before the British arrived. Critics point out that there is no evidence that either of these events actually happened. The Iberian was sank by Captain Friar George G. von Forster's U-boat, and Captain Gunther Kreck was actually captured by the British with no fight, but there is no evidence of sea monsters. Captain Kreck's sea monster attack story isn't the only one by far, but the records were sealed after the completion of the war. People involved with British intelligence wanted to share their experiences at sea, but were barred from speaking publicly about their experiences. Yet Inez McCartney, historian and marine archaeologist at Bournemouth University, remains sanguine about the notion of sea monster attacks. He believes that the only true seaborne threats during the First World War were the submarines themselves. However, Gary Campbell, who runs the official sightings records for the Loch Ness Monster, believes that an actual monster did indeed attack the U-boat, according to The Guardian. The area of sea where the attack took place has a history of sea monster sightings. They've ranged from the north coast of Wales to Liverpool Bay, he said. What the German captain said could well be true. It's great to see how Nessie's saltwater cousin clearly got involved in helping with the war effort. She even managed to do the damage without anyone being killed. So did sea monsters attack German U-boats? That's kind of a crazy story. And on the one hand, I'm tempted to just throw it out completely uh, because the Germans during the war are not known for their honesty. And I'm not sure that sea monsters are real. (laughs) 
However, if there were a place where some unidentified or undiscovered or allegedly extinct creature could exist, the ocean, which remains mostly unexplored, might just be that place. And this is an interesting story because the entire crew from both of those U-boats swear that they saw these things and that they were attacked by these things. And even in the first story, described a creature that actually used to exist, which is bizarre. My question is, how did these sea monsters know to attack the Germans? Because they do not sound like sea monsters to me. They sound like sea friends. They sound like sea allies. Because they only attacked the bad guys. They didn't harm the good guys. They went after the bad guys. How convenient. Yeah, I don't know what to think about that story. It's kind of a fun one. What do you think? Email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com and let us know, do you believe that these German U-boats were actually attacked by sea monsters? Or do you think that maybe these German crews simply made up these stories to cover for their ineptness or for the fact that they willingly turned themselves in to the enemy? I don't know. I do know that all over the world, for years and years and years, there is a history of people saying and claiming that they have seen creatures that were allegedly extinct, and people saying, no, you did not see that. It is extinct. And then later finding out, actually, there are a couple left. Like, this has happened time and time again. So, possible. Probably not likely, but possible. Interesting story. From off the coast of Ireland, we go to the center of the Earth for our next story. Earth contains buried chunks of an alien world that are millions of times larger than Mount Everest, research suggests. If you were to peer deep under Earth's crust, you'd spot two giant blobs of rock cupping the planet's core like a pair of hands. I ain't know that, but I guess I will take your word for it. If you tell me there's two blobs of rocks cupping the planet's core like a pair of hands... I'm just going to have to say, okay. The source of these mysterious continent-sized formations, that's big. One under the Pacific Ocean, the other under Africa, has baffled geologists for four decades. Some experts have suggested that the massive rocks are fragments of tectonic plates that got trapped under their counterparts. But according to new research, their origin may be otherworldly. A group of scientists from Arizona State University suggested the blobs are remnants of a Mars-sized planetary embryo named Theia, which struck Earth in its infancy 4.5 billion years ago. I'm not going to lie. Whenever I read something and scientists are like, this happened 4.5 billion years ago, my first response is, yeah, right. Like, how you know? Were you there? Did you see it happen? Who told you this happened 4.5 billion years ago? And I know scientists have ways to figure these things out and to age things, yada, yada, yada. I, I believe science. Don't get in my inbox. Don't get at me. I'm just saying. If I'm honest, my first response is, how do you know? But if you tell me that is so, I guess I am inclined to believe you because you know a lot more than I do. The impact is thought to have turned Earth's surface into a sea of fiery magma and caused it to shoot out enough planetary debris to create the moon. 
Say what? That's how the moon was created? Because a planet ran into Earth? And then like a chunk, a chunk just floated away and it's like, ooh, the moon. That's wild. Kian Yoon, the lead researcher behind the findings, studies geodynamics at Arizona State. He thinks that following the ancient collision, parts of Theia may have sunk and gotten preserved deep in our planet's mantle, the semi-solid layer between the Earth's crust and core. Those pieces are millions of times larger than Mount Everest in terms of volume, according to Yoon. Geologists discovered these chunks. Their technical name is Large Low Shear Velocity Provinces, if you say so, by sending seismic waves down into the planet. Under both Africa and the Pacific Ocean, the speed of these seismic waves slowed to a crawl, suggesting an area of rock denser than its surroundings. The animation below, based on a 2016 analysis, shows the size of these areas. According to Yoon, these blobs are between 1.5 and 3.5% more dense than the rest of Earth's mantle and hotter. I have never said the word mantle more times in my life than in this article. If the planet Theia was rich in iron and highly dense, Yoon's model showed any pieces of it that broke off when it hit Earth would have sunk deep into our planet's mantle. There it is again. There, they could have accumulated undisturbed rather than getting mixed into the rest of the, you guessed it, mantle. It's also possible denser chunks of Earth's crust sank into the mantle and joined them, contributing to the blob's growth over time. Figuring out what these slabs are made of is challenging. Their deepest parts are 1,800 miles under our feet in the part of the mantle closest to Earth's outer core. They're 621 miles high and two to three times wider than they are tall. But scientists have figured out that the plumes of hot rock and magma from some Icelandic and Samoan volcanoes came from these blobs. By analyzing this magma's makeup, researchers can glean insight into the composition of these mysterious buried chunks. According to a 2019 study, some elements in the volcanic plumes date back to about 4.5 billion years ago, if you say so, when Theia supposedly hit Earth. The idea that the impact between a tiny planet and Earth helped form the moon has been around for more than 45 years. But a problem with that hypothesis is that scientists haven't found any evidence that Theia actually existed. Wait a second. They don't even know? What is this article even about? you telling me the moon was made when some planet named Theia collided with Earth, and then you're going to tell me that, but we don't even really know that there was ever a planet named Theia. You're out here just making stuff up, Mr. Yoon. And he go to Arizona State. Everybody know Arizona State is a party school. That is a party school. Let's talk to the scientists of Yale or Harvard or Dartmouth, one of these very well-to-do schools, not Arizona State where they be doing keg stands every other weekend. My goodness, they don't even know if Theia ever existed. A 2016 study suggested that that's because Earth and Theia's cores fused together. Another idea put forward in 2018 posits that when the planets collided, both were almost completely vaporized. According to that thinking, Earth becomes a rapidly spinning mass of molten and vaporized rock called a synestia, then collapsed back into a molten planet. Part of that spinning mass became the moon, and Theia was no more. A third theory, called the hit-and-run, according to Yoon, is that Theia just glanced off Earth, and chunks of one planet, or pieces from both, combined to form the moon. But the moon's composition matches Earth's almost exactly, which suggests that it contains very little of Theia. Yoon's new findings, which will soon be published in the Journal of Geophysical Research Letters, may finally offer proof that Theia was in our solar system, 
billions of years ago. It sounds like it offers zero proof. It sounds like Mr. Yoon is just writing an article saying maybe this happened or maybe that happened and we have no way to test it and we really don't know it all. But I'm going to say that there was a planet called Theia and if there was a planet called Theia, it may have run into the Earth 4.5 billion years ago. And if it ran into the Earth at the right angle, maybe part of the Earth glanced off and floated into outer space and possibly resulted in the creation of our moon. Well, Mr. Yoon, maybe so. Or maybe the moon is made of cheese. Prove me wrong. Our next story takes us to the California coast. Leaked Navy video appears to show UFO off of California's coast. A newly leaked Navy video appears to show an unidentified flying object disappearing into the water off of California, according to a clip obtained by a documentary filmmaker and shared with NBC News. The video was captured in July 2019 by Navy aircraft and recorded in the USS Omaha's Combat Information Center, according to the filmmaker Jeremy Corbell. The clip appears to show a spherical object flying above the water for a few minutes near San Diego before it vanishes. San Diego. Favorite city of my Meemaw. Yeah. It splashed, military personnel can be heard saying in the video. The Defense Department confirmed that the clip was recorded by Navy personnel and said that it will be reviewed by the Pentagon's Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force. Phenomena. Do, 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 do. Phenomena. Do, 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 do. Phenomena. Do, 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 da, 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 da. A panel established last year to gain insight into the nature and origins of such objects. The video was published a few days before 60 Minutes aired an interview with two former Navy pilots who recalled having been dispatched to investigate multiple anomalous aerial vehicles that descended 80,000 feet in less than a second. The incident also occurred off of San Diego in 2004. One of the pilots, Commander David Favor, told 60 Minutes that personnel found a little white tic-tac-looking object moving above the water before it disappeared. Seconds later, his ship, the USS Princeton, said the object reappeared on its radar 60 miles away. Christopher Mellon, a top defense official in the Clinton and George W. Bush administrations, said in an interview that there was a lot of continuity between recent reports of unidentified flying objects and reports dating back decades. What we're seeing are a number of distinct and different things, he said. Sometimes we're seeing a 50-foot object that can travel at hypersonic speeds and seemingly go into orbit or come down from altitudes of potentially above 100,000 feet. Mellon said the stigma associated with reporting such phenomena, I already did the song, has long kept witnesses quiet, a sentiment echoed by Lieutenant Commander Alex Dietrich, one of the Navy pilots interviewed by 60 Minutes. Over beers, we've said, hey man, if I saw this solo, I don't think I would have come back and said anything, Dietrich said, because it sounds so crazy when I say it. A lengthy story in the New Yorker titled How the Pentagon Started Taking UFOs Seriously examined the work of journalist Leslie Keene last month. Keene co-wrote an article in the New York Times four years ago reporting that the Pentagon was spending millions of dollars on a threat identification program to examine unidentified aircraft that moved at high velocities with no apparent signs of propulsion. This is wild. Like, years ago, if you talked about UFOs, which they now call UAPs, I hate that they changed that, by the way. Years ago, if you talked about UFOs, people would write you off as being crazy. But now, we're at the point where there's almost no denying it. Like, even our Navy and the Pentagon and our government is openly saying, yeah, 
we see these things too and we can't explain them. We're not sure what they are and we're trying to figure out if they're a threat. Like that in and of itself is crazy. And even now, we we have seen that when people in the past have talked about seeing these things in the sky and they have been made fun of and they have been maligned and they have been shouted down, that a lot of that was actually done intentionally, intentionally to silence them and to discredit them. And I don't know what these things are. I don't know if it's uh, technology of foreign governments. I don't know if it's some type of unmanned drone. I don't know if it's some type of projection and not even a physical object at all. I don't know if it's some interdimensional creature. I, I don't know what it is. But the fact that our Navy pilots are seeing it and that they're saying that this is a real thing, like this is a big deal. Like this is now actual news. We're not talking about tabloids. We're talking about the New York Times. We're talking about 60 Minutes. And our country and other countries' governments are starting to say these things are taking up our airspace and we don't know what they are and maybe they're a threat. I certainly can't explain it, but I'm glad to see that at least people who have mentioned these things in the past can now at least experience a, a small trace of vindication and to know that there is some credibility to the things that have been said by people over the course of decades. So much is coming out about this stuff now, and I know that uh, here this month or next month, um, the government is having to release a report about their research into UFOs that was a part of the coronavirus package. And I expect that there will be a lot of redacted information. Uh, the government is not big on telling us things when they do not have to. But I am looking forward to seeing what they do say. And I am looking forward to, to learning more and to figuring out what, what's happening in our skies and apparently in our waters. And trying to see what, what this is all about. It's a wild time to be alive. Our Navy out here seeing UFOs. And they're not the only ones. Our last story of the night takes us to Puerto Rico, Mexico, Central America, and across the globe. The creepy truth about the chupacabra. Yeah, El Chupacabra. While there might be a number of modern mythological beasts stalking our woods, mountains, oceans, and rivers, most of them don't have sinister intentions. Sure, it'd be scary if Nessie poked her head over the water, or if Bigfoot wandered into your yard. But honestly, the worst thing a big ape is going to do is accidentally topple your mailbox or maybe stare into your windows. The chupacabra, on the other hand? Yikes. Those things are vicious. Known for ripping out the throats of livestock and draining out their blood, these vampiric goat suckers have been accused of ruining the day of countless farmers throughout Latin America as well as the southwestern United States. Surprisingly enough, the real scientific explanation behind the whole chupacabra myth is even creepier than the legend particularly if flesh-eating mites make you uncomfortable. Before getting to that part, though, let's start back at the beginning. Most of the monsters people talk about today are drawn from old legends. Oddly enough, the chupacabra has no such deep roots. Though an old New York Times piece refers to strange livestock attacks that took place in the 70s, it wasn't until 1995 that chupacabra sightings really became a thing, and it all started in Puerto Rico. According to what chupacabra expert Benjamin Radford told ABC News, the creepy little monster was first spotted by a Canavanas resident named Madeline Tolentino. In an alibi interview, Mrs. Tolentino described the creature that she saw as being three feet tall, bipedal, and humanoid. It had distinctive spines running across its back, long slender fingers, and no genitals. 
This is a family show. Tolentino's sightings made the local TV news, and the story went viral across Puerto Rico. Not long afterward, Animal Planet says hundreds of heads of livestock were slaughtered right there in Canavanas. The problem got so bad that Mayor Jose Quimo Soto spent the next year hunting for chupacabras with an armed militia week after week. Spoiler alert, they never found anything. However, the chupacabra attacks and sightings migrated across the island as other areas were forced to deal with mass-murdered sheep, chickens, guinea pigs, and even cats. The local issue soon spread to the mainland as chupacabra sightings popped up in Florida. A new legend had been born. Here's one particularly bizarre feature of the chupacabra when compared to its more consistent cryptid cousins. There are two versions, and pretty much the only thing they have in common is a taste for the blood of domesticated animals. Most of the early chupacabra sightings as documented by the New York Times lined up closely with Tolentino's description of a humanoid reptilian, often with glowing red eyes, a long forked tongue, and the distinctive array of spines across its back. Early believers tended to think of the chupacabra as an alien life form, an abomination, maybe even a demonic entity, rather than simply a carnivorous animal. These days, when you hear chupacabra, you probably picture a lanky, sharp-toothed canine, which tends to walk on four legs and is usually hairless, but certainly not scaly. As time went on, a lot of the X-Files-type associations have largely fallen by the wayside, as more people came to believe the chupacabra might just be an undiscovered animal. As the BBC explains, the concept of these dog-like chupacabras seemed to have replaced the original bipedal creature sometime in the 2000s, probably right as the story was gaining more popularity. Though both versions might share the same taste in food, they probably wouldn't like each other very much. Every monster has its own stomping ground, and if the chupacabra did speak a human language, it would definitely be Spanish or maybe an indigenous South American tongue. For the most part, these hypothetical blood-sucking predators seem to prefer hunting for goats in Latin American countries and territories, and even when they creep up to the United States, they're more likely to be spotted in southern border states like Texas and Arizona. Chupacabra stories are even told all the way down in South America, and a Spanish newspaper, ABC, reported on a supposed chupacabra corpse being found in Paraguay. Probably part of this is just because when people claim to see strange woodland monsters in Canada and the U.S., they don't think chupacabra. They think Sasquatch or maybe the Jersey Devil. However, chupacabra sightings do sometimes occur in weird locations. As ThoughtCo points out, there have been sightings as far north as New Jersey and Michigan, and one report even came all the way from Wixwishire, England. However, the story has spread even further. At one point, an unidentified animal in China was claimed to be a captured chupacabra before it was actually found to be an albino civet cat, according to People Daily Online. Let's presume for a moment that chupacabra is real, and it's not just some misidentified wild animal. If so, what is it? Where did it come from? Some of the theories about the chupacabra's origins are seriously wild. As the Center for Inquiry explains, the two most popular UFO-inspired explanations for the chupacabra are that it's either an alien creature dropped on Earth, presumably for extraterrestrial amusement, or that it's the result of some weird science experiment by NASA. Who knows why NASA would be genetically engineering blood-sucking monsters instead of, you know, building rockets, but hey, that's the theory. The NASA Frankenstein notion grew popular enough that according to Animal Planet, NASA spokesman Brian Welch was forced to publicly deny the theory, groaning that before this it was the face on Mars, and before that it was modifying the weather, before that we were beaming radiation from satellites to make people impotent, and so on. Apparently, you can only deny conspiracies so many times before all the fun is sucked out of it. The bizarre origin stories don't end there. 
Some claim the Chilean military discovered chupacabra eggs, and Benjamin Radford has discussed how the disaster caused to Puerto Rico by Hurricane Hugo in 1989 is often tied to the goat suckers' supposed escape from the island. Probably the weirdest theory as described by ABC is the belief that HIV and AIDS were caused by the chupacabra's vampiric tendencies. As you probably know, the Spanish name chupacabra translates to English as goat sucker, referring to this cryptid's unpleasant habit of sucking blood out of livestock. However, because the chupacabra wasn't even recognized as a creature real or fake until a 1995 incident in Puerto Rico, its name is a modern invention. According to Professor Ronaldo L. Roman of the University of Georgia, it seems likely that this distinctly monstrous name was coined by, of all things, a comedian, Silvero Perez. Not everyone was so thrilled about the ghastly moniker, though. UFO investigator Jorge Martin pushed for the creature to be renamed EBOS, a Spanish acronym meaning Alien Biological Entities. Unfortunately, acronyms are never as catchy as a good horror movie-style label, and Chupacabra won the battle. Somewhat amusingly, it seems like the name Chupacabra actually predated the violent sightings. ABC News says the term appeared in a 1960s episode of Bonanza, though it was used in reference to a type of bird that supposedly sucked milk from nursing mama goats, i.e. goat suckers. Not quite so creepy as the chupacabra everyone knows about. If you were stalking the internet back in the good old days of yore, aka the 2000s, way before the MySpace reference in Iron Man became outdated, there's a good chance the name chupacabra brings back memories of a certain nightmarish photograph taken in Los Angeles, which seemed to show the terrifyingly realistic head of a chupacabra having been severed, held up, and mutilated by some kid with a stick. If you weren't horrified by the thought that the chupacabra was real, you were horrified by the grotesque animal rights abuses depicted in the photo. As it happens, though, this photo was never supposed to be a hoax, even though it became one. The image was actually the creation of an artist named Charlie White. He referred to this particular image as Highland Park, and it belongs to a photo series called In a Matter of Days. According to Snopes, White's photo series was intended to depict an array of accidental encounters with monsters in Los Angeles, symbolizing moral decline within Western civilization. Yes, you were supposed to feel bad for the mutilated chupacabra in the image, as White's concept was based on making these horrific monsters seem less horrific than humans. In 2007, a Texas nutritionist named Phyllis Canyon was struck by a chupacabra problem, according to Huffington Post. Despite her best efforts, Canyon's ranch kept getting raided by an unseen predator that killed 28 of her chickens, ripping out their throats. One day, Canyon stumbled upon a profoundly weird dog-like corpse on the side of the road. The dog's body had tough, hairless blue skin, steel blue eyes, only three toes on each foot, a pronounced overbite, and strange pouches on both sides of its tail. The Texas rancher was pretty sure she had just discovered a chupacabra, so she brought this Texas blue dog home had it stuffed by a taxidermist, and now keeps it in her living room. She also tested it, and according to Canyon, the blue dog came out as a hybrid of a coyote and a Mexican wolf. An array of similar-looking Texas blue dogs popped up all over the state. A local Houston news station asked animal control expert Claude Griffin about the matter, and Griffin said people in the area were specifically inbreeding different types of canines for the sheer purpose of letting them go, catching them, and claiming they'd found a chupacabra. So yes, the blue dogs were real, and yes, they were canines. But here's the interesting thing. Just because these animals were canines, it doesn't mean that they were also chupacabras. Because, have you ever heard of scabies? Don't scratch. Also known as the seven-year itch, scabies is caused by little flesh-eating mites. And while it seriously sucks to have them as a human being, they're a lot worse for canines. 
When the mites get under a dog or coyote's skin, they cause a condition called mange, which is not only intensely itchy for the poor pups, but also causes severe hair loss, turns their skin into a thickened black-red mess, and eventually kills them. It's horrifying stuff. And as if the scabies mites weren't horrible enough, research has determined they're also most likely the real cause of all this chupacabra business. As the BBC explains, real-life chupacabras are actually canine mammals, particularly coyotes, who come down with severe mange and start preying on livestock. How is this confirmed? Because any time a dead chupacabra pops up after a rash of farm killings, tests show that these weird-looking creatures end up being canines with mange. It's surprisingly depressing, but it makes a lot of sense. But wait, why would coyotes rip out goats or chickens or sheep's throats and drink their blood? Well, for one, all that vampirism stuff is an exaggeration. Live science explains that whenever chupacabra victims are autopsies, there's always plenty of blood left in the body. As for the whole ripping throats out thing, the Texas Natural Resource Server explains that this attack isn't actually that unusual a behavior in predatory mammals. So yeah, chupacabras are real. They just aren't their own species. So what do you think? I wanted us to take a deep dive tonight into the legend of the chupacabra. I thought that that would be a lot of fun. I remember hearing about the chupacabra as a kid, and in the stories I heard, the chupacabra would come and take children who were misbehaving. I don't know. Have you ever heard that one? I have heard the whole alien part of the chupacabra myth. Um, I, when I think of a chupacabra, I do think of, of the dog-like creature, um, so I guess that's because of my age. Uh, if a chupacabra myth started in 1995, I was six years old, shouty. Like, I was, you know, I'm older than the chupacabra. Is it possible that there could be some type of hybrid canine or undiscovered canine that has been causing these things? Like, sure, absolutely. We discover new creatures all the time. Creatures get together and make new creatures all the time. Or could it just be that coyotes get these mites and get mange and they've been mistaken for chupacabras? That's also possible too. I don't know. But I've always enjoyed the story of chupacabra. And this is one kind of like mermaids that there's all kinds of pictures and images and videos of people who have claimed that they have found chupacabra um, corpses or bodies um, or taken pictures of chupacabras. And some of them are pretty convincing. Some of them are really cool to look at. Uh, I remember seeing that picture that turned out to be a hoax because it was just an artist's rendition. Uh, I do remember that. But it's at least a cool story. And there's no doubt that these things have happened on farms, and uh, they're hard to explain because I'll give you that a coyote could break in and, and take your chickens, like 20 chi chickens, sure, sure. But what about when it's all these cows? What about when there's multiple cows who have been gutted and whose throats have been eaten out? You're telling me that one coyote, I mean, what, a group of, a pack of coyotes? Like, what is it? I don't know. What do you think? Do you believe chupacabras are real? Are they alien creatures? Are they something demonic? Are they just a myth and a legend? Are they coyotes with mange? Email the show at In the Shed with Wes and let us know what you think. Let us know the chupacabra stories that you have heard growing up. What did you picture when you hear the word? chupacabra it's a fun one to say probably the most fun name to say of any cryptid that i've heard of chupacabra i like it so that's the history of the chupacabra interesting story fun to think about and possibly explained by science that's all for this week you don't have to go home but you can't stay here 
I can't either. It's back in the house and out of the shed for me. Thanks again for listening to episode 15. Make sure to subscribe, like, share, and review. It really does help. If you have any paranormal experiences, opinions about sports, or politics that you'd like to share, you can email the show at intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. Again, that's intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. I might even read it on air. Look for us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at InTheShed4. Tune in again next week when we'll hit the headlines, talk NBA playoffs, and take a deep dive into the legend of black-eyed kids. This has been In the Shed with Wes Anderson, the best news show in the land covering politics, sports, and the paranormal. Have an adventurous and fulfilling weekend. I'll catch you tools later. Peace out, Boy Scout. Meemaw, we made it!